a show of hands. I don't usually do this, but I'll ask you a show of hands. Everyone that attended Grand Avenue Elementary School in Orlando, Florida. So. All right, so, so we begin with the understanding that you are deprived in your childhood from the very beginning that you didn't get to go to Grand Avenue Elementary School in Orlando, Florida. You didn't have Miss Harris in first grade. What can I say? And you may not believe this, but at Grand Avenue Elementary School in the first grade, everybody was required to memorize Psalm 100. I know a lot of people have memorized the 23rd Psalm, and it's a good one. But in Miss Harris's class and all the first grade classes at Grand Avenue Elementary School in Orlando, Florida, we not only memorized Psalm 100, we recited it every morning along with the Pledge of Allegiance to the flag. Some of you that did not go to Grand Avenue Elementary School probably don't even know what that is. We said the Lord's Prayer, and we absolutely, without fail, said the Golden Rule, of which we were reminded throughout the day. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. Don't tell me I didn't learn nothing in grammar school. Psalm 100. Now, we did not memorize the ESV. The only Bible we had was, was King James. Uh, but the ESV is, is such a wonderful translation. We'll read today from the ESV. Psalm 100. Make a joyful noise to the Lord... All the earth, serve the Lord with gladness. Come into his presence with singing. Know that the Lord, he is God. It is he who made us, and we are his. We are his people and the sheep of his pasture. Enter in his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. Give thanks to him. Bless his name, for the Lord is good. His steadfast love endures forever and his faithfulness to all generations. I commend to you Psalm 100. For as I was reflecting on the reading of the book of Jonah and Jonah chapter 4 this week, Psalm 100 came to my mind over and over again. The Lord is God. Now, you may not believe this, but Ben absolutely badgers me to no end toward the end of the week to give him a title for this Sunday's sermon. So, so I struggle. I struggle with coming up with a title when I haven't even finished preparing the sermon just to satisfy our pastor, which I think is in the Bible somewhere. And so it was this week, it was not difficult at all. For I knew that the title of today's message 
was right out of Psalm 100 and right out of Jonah and specifically, very pointedly, Jonah chapter 4. The Lord is God. Now these words may not communicate to you as well as, as they might if you, were, uh, if you spoke Hebrew. The Lord is the name that God gave Moses when Moses asked, Who shall I tell him has sent me? God said, I am. We translate into English, I am. But it was the tetragrammaton, right? Allie knows what the tetragrammaton is. It's a Yahweh comes to us directly out of the Hebrew. God's name, the Lord, is how it's used throughout Scripture with all capital letters. The Lord, Yahweh, the name of God, is Elohim. The Lord is, is God. And just as a side note, Elohim is the plural form of the word Hebrew word God, El. More on that on another day. The Lord is God. And this is the book of Jonah. This is Jonah chapter 4. The Lord is God. Now you'll remember perhaps from last week, your familiarity with the book of Jonah, that Jonah had, had eventually done what God told him to do, went to Nineveh, preached, told him, said, 40 days and you're going to be destroyed. The people, the king, everybody in Nineveh, they repented. They turned away from their sinfulness, self-will. They turned to God. They cried out. They prayed to God. And God relented of what he had said he would do to destroy Nineveh. At this point, we take up chapter 4. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly. And he was angry. And he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. For I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me. For it is better for me to die than to live. And the Lord said, Do you do well to be angry? Jonah went out of the city and sat to the east of the city and made a booth for himself there. He sat under it in the shade till he should see what would become of the city. Now the Lord appointed a plant and made it come up over Jonah that it might be a shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. So Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. But when dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant so that it withered. When the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind, and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint. And he asked that he might die, and said, It is better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, do you do well to be angry for the plant? And he said, that is, Jonah said, yes, 
I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. And the Lord said, You pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. And should I not pity Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left, and also much cattle? Well, this Jonah is some character. I mean, really. What can we learn? What can we learn from Jonah? Jonah, I'm reluctant to say it, but Jonah might be a Baptist. Jonah might be a Baptist preacher. Because Jonah is real good at explaining things to God. Jonah has to explain to God how Jonah knows God better than God knows himself. God had been merciful to Nineveh. God had been merciful to Jonah. God had called Jonah into his service, to his ministry. Even when Jonah rebelled against him, God was merciful. God was merciful when he sent the storm on the ship that ultimately, ultimately led to Jonah being thrown overboard. God was merciful when he sent a, a great fish that swallowed Jonah. God was merciful when he heard Jonah's prayer from the belly of the great fish. God was merciful when Jonah was thrown up on the beach. God was merciful when the people of Nineveh turned away from their sin and self-will. There's a lot of God's mercy going on here. And Jonah, Jonah don't like it. Jonah is not happy with a merciful God. Jonah is, is not happy with a God who doesn't do what Jonah wants him to do. Does any, any of this sound familiar? Sure did to me. Jonah is angry with God. God is merciful. Jonah is angry. God gives Jonah an object lesson. Remember when object lessons used to be so popular? We really don't do too many object lessons anymore. So God sends a, a plant, a vine, a little shade tree, as Jonah sits there waiting for destruction to come on Nineveh, like Jonah had said it would, God sends this vine and it grows up and it's a nice shade. We're talking about Nineveh now. This is, uh, this is a pretty arid country. Like I say, it's a dry heat, right? but, but it's hot. Jonah appreciates the shade. 
Jonah pouts. God does a lot of appointing in here, doesn't he? Did you hear all that? Everywhere you turn, God's appointing something. God had done a, a lot of appointing for Jonah, hadn't he? Jonah, Jonah was exceedingly, you hear that? There's a lot of exceedingness here for Jonah. Jonah does everything with a passion. Jonah is exceedingly glad because of the plant. Jonah appreciates his comfort. Jonah likes being comfortable while he's waiting for the destruction, the death, of a multitude of people. One thing about Jonah, it seems that there's no end to his pettiness, to his selfishness. And I mean no offense to the young ones, but to his childishness. Shade comes, shade goes. And when the shade is gone, it is so hot that Jonah continues in his passionate desire for comfort that he claims he would be more comfortable dead than he would be under that baking sun. Lord, let me die so that I don't suffer anymore. And God very mercifully says to Jonah, Jonah, consider yourself. Consider your own heart. I don't know if Jonah considers his heart or not. I don't know if Jonah reflects on what he has said, what he has done, what his expectations, what his relationship has been with the Lord God. But Jonah does not respond. Jonah does not relent. Jonah does not repent as God calls upon him to consider his own heart. And so it is that God in his mercy God condescends good word condescends God God lowers himself right condescends in order to explain himself to Jonah God condescends to express, to explain to Jonah that he is the Lord, that he is God, and that he is sovereign over all. He is sovereign in his mercy. He is sovereign in his compassion, both toward the people of Nineveh and toward Jonah. Jonah 
it appears, didn't know God as well as he thought he did. More than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left and also much cattle. People who aren't deserving of the evil reputation of Nineveh. It's probably a character fault of mine, but I, uh, I watch a lot of... Uh, eh, there's no other word for it, war films. Uh, both, uh, both in, in uh, uh, drama and in reality stuff. And you know, there's there's always there's always those that that aren't in the war. There's always those that are trying to get out of the way. There's always those that are not part of the conflict. They they aren't on one side or the other. They just, they just don't want to get killed. I'm reluctant to call them the innocent because that has a very, very powerful meaning in theological terms. But you're, you're, you know what I mean. The people that just, just aren't in the battle. They're just people. And throughout the ages, God, God had shown his mercy toward those that don't know their right hand from their left. Jonah wanted carpet bombing. God could be merciful. Jesus gives us a parable in Matthew chapter 13. It's called the parable of the hairs growing among the wheat, or the weeds growing among the wheat. And Jesus tells the, the parable that a, a, an enemy comes and sows weeds in among this, uh, this farmer's wheat, and the weeds come up and they're uh, interfering with the wheat crop, and his, his field hands want to go out and, and tear up the weeds. And the farmer says, no. He said, because if you if you go out and tear up the weeds, then, then you're going to pull up some of the wheat too. So just let it all grow together. And he says, when it comes harvest time, he said, we'll, we'll gather the weeds into bundles to be burned. And we'll gather the wheat into our barns. A parable demonstrating that God is, God is merciful. God is merciful toward everybody. God's mercy extends throughout his creation. Even, even, but beginning with Adam and Eve, God said, said, when you eat from that tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you'll surely die. God was merciful. They ate. And God was merciful. Now, yes, they died, but they didn't die that day. And that was God's mercy. 
And God has shown his mercy toward all of his creation throughout because God has not visited his righteous wrath on those that have turned against him, rebelled against him, sinned against him. Jonah didn't seem to get that. I hope Jonah got it eventually. But we don't see it in the text. We just see Jonah as a guy that didn't want God to be merciful. We see Jonah as a person who had passed judgment, found fault, took offense at the lives of others, and wanted God to carry out his vengeance on those that Jonah appointed. The more and more I think about it, the more and more I think Jonah may have been a Baptist preacher. It's okay that we see Jonah-ness. Can I make up a word? Jonah-ness? It's okay to see Jonah-ness in others. That judgmental, unforgiving, unmerciful, petty, selfish, childish Jonah-ness. It's okay to see that in others. So long as we hear the question from the Lord God, is it right? Is it right for you to pass judgment on others? And so long as we appreciate God's compassionate mercy toward all, the, all others as much as we desire God's mercy for ourselves. God did a lot of appointing in the book of Jonah. He appointed the fish, the storm, the worm, the wind, the plant, all to demonstrate his mercy for Jonah. God does a lot of appointing. It's what he does. Did God appoint the book of Jonah for you? Did God appoint Jonah chapter 4 for you? We have spent, today makes the fourth Sunday, in consideration of the book of Jonah, little small book amongst the minor prophets in the Old Testament, I think it's a valuable book. I think it's a worthwhile, it's an important book in Scripture. And I think it's important that we read it as Scripture, that we accept Jonah as Bible, God's Word. And I think Jonah, the book of Jonah, I think is, is a, a perfect example for us of, of accepting, believing that God inspired the writing of the Bible. Because I'm here to tell you, Jonah didn't write the book of Jonah. And no scribe somewhere along the way made up this story. 
Jonah didn't write Jonah chapter 4, I'm here to tell you. God, chapter 4, book of Jonah, could only be written by God. Jonah, Jonah looks so bad. God, well, God looks like God. Jonah's, Jonah's childishness, beyond comprehension, precludes any thought, any possibility that anybody but God was going to communicate, pass along, record these events for posterity. I offer this to you as evidence of God's inspiration of Scripture, only to go on to say to you that we receive the truth of God's Word in faith, trusting that God not only inspired the, the original authors, the original writers of these texts, but that he has further protected those texts and brought them to us in this day and age as a reliable presentation of his word in the lives of his people for this day. And we're told in Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 6, without faith, it is impossible to please Him. Without faith, it is impossible to please God. I sometimes think of myself as a very intelligent person. How dare you snicker? <laughs> and, and I honestly, I could offer you reasonable, logical evidence upon evidence upon evidence of the reliability, the truth, the trustworthiness of the Bible, God's Word. But if you do not receive it by faith, all that you know, all that you accept, is without value. For without faith, it is impossible to please God. And so we, we read the book of Jonah, we receive what, what we hear, what we read, what we know, what we're given to know from the book of Jonah. We, we take into account the story, the events, the, the development of this, and we receive the lessons that come to us from our consideration of God's Word. And we do this by faith. I've all, all, all month long, I've declined to share this with you. But today, it's, it's just got to come out. Took, took a Bible class in college. And each of us was required to uh, uh, do a presentation on a book of the Bible. And I, I don't know if, if I chose Jonah or if it was assigned to me. It, in either case, I wound up with Jonah. And by hook or by crook, eventually one day or the other, I, I got this little, little pamphlet, just a small booklet. Don't know where I got it. But at any rate, it just presented just the most marvelous, just uh, uh, encouraging, uh, wonderful 
discussion that pointed to, to the factual nature of everything that goes on in Jonah. That, it, that it's all factual. That it, it all happened just as it says in the Bible. Well, I believe that to begin with. But I thought the, the little booklet really had some great evidence. And so when I did my presentation, I relied on this and, and I affirmed the, the factualness of the book of Jonah. And when it came to be Q&A time, if these things go, the, the professor, a man that I thought very highly of and do to this day, he's with the Lord now, um, he said, Bill, can you, uh, can you accept that there is a possibility that, that Jonah might in fact be, be a parable, that it might be not just actual events, but that this is developed as a story? And I said, no, I can't. And I offered as evidence that what to me is the most convincing for Jesus, Jesus alluded to his, his uh, death and resurrection as being commensurate with Jonah's experience in the, in the great fish. As Jesus said, as Jonah was three days in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be in the tomb. And I said, so this, this to me, just, uh, just Jonah's got to be... And he said, well, Bill, he, said, he says, in academia, he said, we have to have open minds and, and be uh, uh, accepting of different theories and whatnot. And I said, yeah, not me. Jonah's the real deal. Well, I got a B on that presentation. Only B I ever got in, in any religion class in, in college. Graduated with a 3.92, summa cum laude. One B. Now, why did I say that? Surely there's something in my notes that will tell me. <laughs> Genesis, while there's great evidence and things that would, would encourage our hearts, and yet it is by faith that it accomplishes God's purpose in the lives of his people. God did a a lot of appointing. And so we have to believe that God appointed these scriptures for you and I. Certainly, the overriding theme of the book of Jonah is the sovereignty of God. The sovereignty of God. And in, in plain English, it, it, it simply means that God is in control of everything. And there is nothing in which God is not in control. You name it, God's in control of it. God is sovereign. <laughs> the Lord is God. And, and we receive this, this message from, from Jonah, which, which God demonstrates and teaches, performs and acts, appoints his sovereignty throughout the book of Jonah. 
And, and we hear this and we accept this not only from Jonah but throughout Scripture as, as a, a very uh, reassuring. God is in control. God is in control. And fill in the blank on whoever it is that you're glad they ain't. And don't forget to put me on that line. Not Bill. You. In God's sovereignty, we, we, we find confidence. God is in control. God was in control of everything that transpired in the book of Jonah. God is in control of everything that transpires in our lives. And that is a glorious, mighty promise. Truth for our lives. For in that truth, we find peace. God is sovereign. God's word is true. God's promises are sure. God's mercy is never-ending. God demonstrated his mercy toward Nineveh. God demonstrated his mercy toward Jonah. And we experience, we see, we live in God's mercy day by day. God is sovereign. And he is not bound by the words, the actions, or the philosophy of man. In the book of Genesis, we read about Joseph, his brothers throw him in a pit to die, pull him out, sell him into slavery. He goes off to Egypt. God is sovereign over Joseph's life. And when his brothers finally come to, to realize that they've made a, a horrible mistake, Joseph tells them, what you meant for evil, God used for good. There's a there's a good lesson there. It's a good lesson for all of us. A lesson to encourage us to trust in the sovereignty of God. To find that confidence, that assurance, and knowing that God is in control of everything. There is nothing that is not under His power, His knowledge, His hand, His mercy. God appointed much for Jonah and God has appointed in his sovereignty much for us. Now you know, as a matter of fact, you may have some objections to the idea of the sovereignty of God. There, there are many and there are many who, who preach and teach and talk about and write about objections to the teaching on the sovereignty of God, inevitably those objections will lead to objecting to the sovereignty of God over the salvation of His people. The question invariably will be, if God is sovereign, if God is omnipotent, why doesn't God just save everybody? 
Right? Good question? Well, let me say to you in that regard, wherever you stand, wherever you think you come down on the sovereignty of God in the election and the salvation of His people, whether you're a hardcore free willer or a dyed-in-the-wool predestinationer, the reality for every Bible-believing Christian is that not all are saved. All have sinned. All are sinners. All are under the wrath of God. Some are saved. That's what the Bible tells us. And so, to find any objection to the sovereignty of God over the salvation of His people, to find any reservation, reluctance over God elect, God electing those whom He would save, the only distinction is would you have the will of man to have final authority in the salvation? of God's people or would you have God the will of God to have the final authority where are you going to put your trust are you going to trust in the the will of man that it is that is in the person themselves that has the final choice the final authority the one who gets to say yay or nay than the individual? Or do you know the joy, the confidence, the hope that comes in knowing that God, God before the foundation of the world had already elected, had already chosen, had already accomplished the salvation of those whom he would call. Why doesn't God save everybody? I don't know. It's a conundrum. And it's okay to, to think about it. It's okay to wonder. It's okay to ask God. As a matter of fact, it's a good idea to ask God. Seek the answer from God's Word. Read the Bible from Genesis to Maps. See what God has said about these things. Tim Keller of well-known preacher wrote, the doctrine of election combines the sovereignty of God and the responsibility of human beings. Here, too, we find that human cultures and philosophies cannot combine these things. The sovereignty of God over all things, and specifically the sovereignty of God over the salvation of his people, is not consistent with our own reasonableness, with our own logic, with our own uh, sense of, of fairness, with that which we have been taught, that which we've been brought up in, that which has been set before us as a standard. But God's Word 
is certain. The sovereignty of God. God reigns. God rules. God is over all things. Throughout the Old Testament, God chooses whom he will. Abel, not Cain. Noah and his family, not all others. Jacob, not Esau. Israel, not Egypt. And it goes on and on. In the New Testament, Jesus repeatedly, repeatedly asserts God's sovereign election in numerous parables. And in John chapter 6, verse 37, Jesus said, All that God gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. The epistles of Paul, Romans, specifically Romans chapters 8 and 9, 10, Ephesians chapter 1, Colossians, throughout Pauline epistles, throughout New Testament scripture, God asserts his sovereignty to choose whom he will to bring into his family. What shall we say then? Without faith, it is impossible to please God. That which is incomprehensible, that which we cannot reconcile in our own minds, we accept by faith as it comes to us from the Word of God. Be be assured, be certain that you know God loves you. And it is God's will that you would repent of sin and place your faith in His Word, the promises of forgiveness and eternal life through His Son, Jesus Christ. So faith comes from hearing and hearing through the Word of God. We read in Romans 10, 17. We have had set before us this month the book of Jonah. A Jonah that just drips with the sovereignty of God. I have stood before you these four Sundays with God's word between us. And all of these messages and all of this preaching have come with a wealth of gratitude to my brother elders who invited me to bring these messages. But also a great love for you. A great love for you. For those who know the grace of God, that you will be encouraged and comforted. And those whom the Holy Spirit is even now calling to repentance would have the assurance that answering that call is the path to peace, being reconciled to God, the gift of eternal life. And finally, I preach in loving obedience to my Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, and His glorious Word. If you will confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus 
believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. We're not going to sing six verses of Just As I Am. We're not even going to sing one verse. But even so, even now, your prayer of repentance and faith is God's will for your life today. Bow with me, please. Our Father, we praise you and give you thanks for your word and your spirit, O God, which call us to repentance and faith in you, O Lord. We pray now, Father, that you would accomplish your will for your glory in the lives of your people. In Jesus' name, amen.